Um, welcome everyone to the National University of Singapore's Middle East Institute Salon Series. Um, the MEI Salon Series is uh, where we run events in a more casual and relaxed setting, uh, aimed at making the region and its culture more accessible to everyone. We're joined today by a very special individual, uh, Ms. Charlene Winfred. Charlene was born and raised in Singapore and spent most of her adult years in Australia. But in 2013, she left a settled life for one on the road and in 2019, moved to Kurdistan, the autonomous Kurdish region in northern Iraq. There, she worked for a year with a small humanitarian NGO, helping refugees rebuild their lives amid the long shadow of war. Charlene also happens to be an amazing photographer, and we are very glad to have her here today to share with us stories and photographs from a time in Iraq. Charlene will speak first, and then we can do a Q&A with the audience. So over to you, Charlene. Uh, the floor is yours. Hi, good afternoon, everybody. Thank you so, all so much for being here. I'm going to jump straight into my presentation today. Okay. Now, I... Oh, hang on, let me... I can't seem to move my slide. Give me a sec. Okay. I first heard about Iraq when I was about 10 or 11 years old. Um, what news had broken out that Iraq had attacked this tiny neighbor, Kuwait and the U.S. was sending the, its military into Kuwait's aid. Now, if you're younger than me, the first time you might have heard of Iraq was during the 2003 U.S. invasion. Um, uh, among other things, they were on the hunt for weapons of mass destruction that were never found. So, so when I say Iraq, you might, pictures like these might come to mind. Um, or this. This is the old city of Mosul from the banks of the Tigris River. Mosul was captured by the Islamic State in 2014 and ISIS named it their Iraqi capital of the Caliphate. Um, 2017, uh, Iraqi forces drove ISIS out of Mosul, but in, in, in the ensuing battle, a lot of a lot of the, the old city was destroyed. Old Mosul is ancient. It's 800, 1,000 years old. And to see it in ruin like this is absolutely heartbreaking. Um, if you've been following the news in the last year, you might have seen um, headlines like this. There's been a lot that's been happening in Iraq over the last year. Um, there's continuous also shelling from Iran and, of course, Turkey that never makes it to, or, that, or doesn't make it much to international news as well. But have you seen this? This was winter uh, in Sulaymaniyah last year. Oh, this year, actually, January this year. And what about scenes like this? Or what about scenes like this? I didn't think I'd be attending a rave in Kurdistan somehow when I when I first got there last year. Um, this was a pretty epic one in the grounds of a disused tobacco factory right in the center of the city. 
which had been repurposed for as a creative space. And there were beautiful scenes like this in Baghdad. And, and when you think Iraq, what do you think? You think desert, right? That's certainly what I thought um, before I ever went there. But scenes like this also exist there. Now, in this picture for scale, if you look at the top of the mountain near the center of the frame, those little white and brown pixels are actually sheep. Um, if you bring your eye over to the right of the frame, you'll see a truck on top of the ridge line. Um, and if you look really carefully somewhere to the right center of the frame, you can see two guys actually catching a break on the slope of the mountain. All of these all of these pictures that I've showed you live inside the borders of the country we know today as Iraq. It's, these are scenes we don't see in the news. So, hello, I'm Charlene. Um, as I was introduced earlier by Tatiana, I was born and raised in Singapore. I left Singapore in 1999 for Australia and stayed there till about 2013. Um, that was when I left Australia ostensibly on a year-long sabbatical for my then banking job. Um, that sabbatical turned from one year to two, two years to three, seven years on, I'm still on a sabbatical. Um, it's funny how my life takes you, isn't it? But last January, I moved to Iraq to take up a job as a communications officer for a small humanitarian organization called Preemptive Love Coalition. So I lived, I moved to Iraq um, in January last year, and I lived there until March this year when I came home to Singapore. So I've been away from Singapore now for 21 years. This is the first talk I'm, I've ever given back here at home. Um, I'm so grateful to the Middle Eastern Institute of Singapore for having me. And for all of you who are taking time you know, out of your day, who've woken up early from different parts of the world to actually join me here. So thank you very, very much for being here. Okay, so a little bit of background on the organization I work with, because this is pertinent to the rest of the talk. Uh, Preemptive Love Coalition works with refugees and displaced peoples in Syria, in Lebanon, Venezuela, Mexico, and of course, Iraq. Um, we help fast in emergency situations, like when the Beirut blast happened on the 4th of August um, this year. We look to give help that lasts in the form of job creation. And undergirding the core of everything we do is, is healing for peace. So we bring people together, we build communities around the world that work towards peace. And I'm pretty sure in the wake of the pandemic this year, well, not in the wake really, we're still in the midst of it, of the pandemic this year and all of the protests and unrest that's going around all over the world. I'm pretty sure everybody here would agree that peace is, we really do need peace and we need it more than ever. So preemptive love started in Iraq 12 years ago. And that was where I, so that was where I was based all of last year. I was based specifically in the autonomous Kurdish region in the north of the country. Um, the, so the, the blue segment that you see at the, at the top of Iraq, there's the Kurd official Kurdish territory. There are, of course, disputed areas that are not marked on my map. And my job as a comms officer entailed 
three main duties. I wrote stories for all of our online platforms, so main website, social accounts, and so on. Um, I make videos and I also make photographs. I've been a photographer now in some capacity or the other for just over 10 years. And like, despite everything else that I do, photographs are still the heart and soul of, of my work. Um, and when I, as I work for Preemptive Love, the heart and soul of those photographs are the most vulnerable people of where I am, uh, which are in Iraq are refugees and internally displaced, uh, internally displaced people, sorry. So I've shown you a lot of beautiful sites um, in the lead up to this presentation, just like this one. This is the evening view from my old apartment in Sulmania. Um, but of course, not everybody lives like this. So for the last 40 or so years, Iraq's been either at war or working through war's aftermath, um, as has a lot of its neighbors. So at the end of 2019, there were just under 280,000 refugees um, in the country from all over the world and 1.4 million internally displaced Iraq, according to uh, UNHCR, which is the United Nations Refugee Agency. So what's the difference between a refugee and an internally displaced person? A refugee is someone who has, who has crossed international borders to look for safety. Um, when they are officially designated refugees, they come under the protection of UNHCR or the United, uh, United Nations Refugee Agency. And this means they're able to access funding and protection and the resources of the UN. Now, just in case this sounds like a great deal, um, news coverage, uh, studies, of refugees for decades have shown that life is difficult as a refugee. It's not easy to lose something and to start again somewhere where you're in a lot of cases not welcome. Um, but they do have some protections. Um, quite frequently in, in Iraq, they have access to camps built to provide shelter and a little bit of food as well. Um, with internally displaced people, these are people who have lost their homes and have fled to elsewhere in the country. So they don't, they don't cross, people who don't cross international borders but remain in their own country. They, these are internally displaced people. Now this may sound like a better situation because at least you're at home, right? But in reality, it's much more difficult because a country at war has extremely limited resources to help displaced people or anyone really. Um, and also internally displaced people are not under UN protection, so they don't have resources that are, they don't, they don't have access to the resources that are provided by United Nations funds. So people within Iraq who have become internally displaced because of say war or the violence with ISIS, they do face serious challenges to survive. Okay. So. I've just shown you a picture of um, what the main street of a internally uh, in displacement camp for internally displaced people looks like. This is a close-up of what a typical home and camp looks like. It is not easy living. These are just plastic, plastic shielded tents. Um, a lot of them 
have extensions built, as you can see on the right of the frame, um, by wooden poles and such. They are freezing in the wintertime and boiling in the summer. And in Kurdistan, summers reach 46, 47 degrees. Winters frequently drop to freezing or below freezing. So life's, life's hard. But today, I'm here to talk to you about refugees and internally displaced people that I work with. Most of the stories I will share with you today are of internally displaced Iraqis, like Buthina. So Buthina is the lady you can see at the center of the frame in the white polo tee. Um, that's her mother at the leftmost of the frame and her mom's friend that they share a salon space with at the right of the frame. So this is a salon space that exists in a camp of roughly 10,000 displaced individuals. So Bethina came comes from a town in central Iraq that was destroyed by Islamic State or ISIS. She was pregnant when ISIS invaded her hometown. And as if that wasn't bad enough, um, her husband abandoned her after baby number five came along. So life's complicated, right? Even for, for all of us here or who live in stable, secure nations who are generally quite comfortable every day. Relationships are complicated. Um, you know, there's family tensions, nagging health concerns, um, marital issues. And these don't stop just because there's war. They don't stop because there's literal life or death situation at hand. Um, very often they're exacerbated by loss and destruction and other massive stresses that war imposes on people. So this was the case for Bethina. With her husband gone, she and her kids only had her mother for support. Um, so in Iraq, men are still the traditional breadwinners in the household. And with, but with so many men lost to war, the women are now working to provide for their families. Um, but the social and economic barriers are still extremely high. I'm just gonna pause my presentation for a little bit because I'm actually hearing some noise. Does anybody hear that too? Is somebody unmuted? I can hear some noise in the background. No? Okay, it's gone. Great. Thank you. Okay, where was I? All right. Men are the traditional breadwinners in the household for, for most of Iraq. So with so many men lost to the war, um, women, of course, now are stepping up to provide for the kids. Um, but of course, social and economic barriers are still extremely high. And more so for people who live in refugee or displacement camps, because there's thousands of people vying for a handful of jobs. And these are not people who have a car or, you know, uh, near public transport that they can take a bus into the nearest city to look for work. No. Refugee camps, displacement camps are generally not in convenient locations which are well served by public transport. Um, they're generally in quite isolated areas and it's difficult to get to go to and from large cities. So, but you know what? Little ones need to be fed. 
money needs to be made to put food on the table, to send kids to school, um, to be safer for the future. So mothers do what mothers do all over the world. They get on with it. They find a way. And so Buthena came to us um, for help. Now, one of the core programs that Preemptive Love has is to help people find jobs. Um, Buthena wanted to start a salon. So our donors gave her a thousand US dollars to do so. And this bought, as you can see in the photo, a place in camp to, uh, to put up a new tent. Um, it also bought her the tools, the products, and the furniture that she needed. That's Buthina, her mom, shopping for salon supplies uh, in the bazaar. Now, displacement is rarely a short-term situation. Most of the people in this camp um, come from the same area in central Iraq that Buthina did. Um, in 2014 to 2015, the Islamic State came along and destroyed their homes, their livelihoods, and in many cases, their entire world. Um, most have been here for four or five years or more. And if the camps continue being here, too many will remain for the next five, 10, 15 years. We've recently gotten information that the Iraqi government is looking to actually close um, internal displacement camps. And that raises another huge set of problems on its own, because we're talking about hundreds of thousands of Iraqis who will again be displaced and possibly have nowhere to go because they can't return. There's no home waiting for them in their city. There are sectarian tensions that might not allow them to return. There's a lack of resources. There's a whole host of problems there. So, um, so yeah, we don't know more about we we don't know a whole lot about that right now. But we're going to be finding out more and responding as that as the situation arises. But back to Bethina. So life goes on. Kids go to school. People look for work. Uh, women continue the private rituals that are so much a part of who they are all over the world. When Bothina started the salon business, it was the only salon in a camp of 10,000 people. So it quickly became more than a space to, you know, get your skincare for your eyebrows tattooed or made up for a celebration or whatever. It was also a space where women came together to share their lives. It was a safe space for women. Uh, women in Iraq, I want to say, don't have the same freedoms that we enjoy here in Singapore and so much of the rest of the world. So to have safe spaces outside the home is huge. It's very, very, very important. It's very much a part of, of community oh, life. <laughs> okay, so Buthina's salon was a big hit. Um, two months after the launch of her business, we paid her a visit to catch up and see how she was doing. Um, she told us that her business was so good that she was able to invest $500 of her profit to attend a month-long training course in Baghdad um, so she could expand her salon's offering. So this is really great for us to see, to see our business owners reinvest their profits into their business to expand and to make the business bigger, more viable, more sustainable. So the last I heard, oh, hang on, sorry. The last I heard at the end of last year, um, Buthina was planning to go back to her hometown to rebuild her family's life there. Um, I don't know if this is true. I certainly hope that she did end up going back there and that she's 
and that life's getting better for her and all and all of her children there. So I think in the year that I've been with in the almost two years I've been with preemptive love, I think that the one the one thing I've learned is just how resilient people are. Sometimes all people need are just a small helping hand to get over that big hurdle of, you know, trying to start a shop when you have no money. Um, sometimes all it takes is a little bit of money and go here, start your shop and go. And business owners like Buthina have shown us that they're, they're capable of doing this. They just need a little bit of help. People are resilient. Women are resilient. Like Buthina is resilient. And so is Amuna. So Amuna fled central Iraq with six children when the Islamic State approached. Then her husband passed away after they came to camp. So for the longest time, she relied on the goodwill of her neighbors and a very, very small aid stipend to sort of keep the family's body and soul together. So she has six or more mouths to feed, actually, with the grandchildren, um, including medical costs for, for a sick daughter. So it there was never enough money and she did what a lot of displaced people do. She borrowed. And it was a horrible situation to be in. Um, Amuna had been trying to get her business off the ground for the longest time when we met her. She'd been a farmer back in her hometown. Um, but in camp, she turned to making dosheks. So they're the long floor cushions um, that are in many traditional Iraqi homes and certainly also in the tents that serve as homes in camp. So Amuna was pretty successful. She had plenty of customers because she was really good at business, um, but she always had to borrow to buy supplies, which meant that a big chunk of her profit went back to paying debtors, which was incredibly frustrating, as you can probably sympathize with. So what she needed was a little bit of help with initial startup costs. So we, our donors really helped her out. A thousand US dollars got her all the cotton and fabric and other equipment that she needed. And Amuna was off to a flying start. Um, in, the, in the photo, you can see these are the huge bags of cotton that we went to a factory to get for her um, the day that we brought her shopping to start her business. And so some weeks later, we stopped by in her shop um, to see how she was doing, you know, say hello, just fi find out what the situation is. And of course we walked in and she was thriving. So business was so good that two of her daughters were helping her out in the shop. So that's, that's as we were them there. Um, because her demand was so great. She couldn't, she could, she could no longer cope with it on her own. And where she previously made only dosheks to order the long floor cushions, then she all had again started, uh, sorry, she had then started expanding her product range to include uh, like other varieties of cushions as well. And then she also started stocking her shop with pre-made cushions. So customers could just come in and buy one off the shelf if they wanted. Now, when I first moved to Iraq, Amuna was the person that made the mattress that I slept on for a few months while I was on the hunt for a suitable bed. Um, I think for, for, for that reason, I always, I look at this, I look at this photo that's on screen now and the day that we went to visit her and she was, and she was telling 
as you know, you know, thank God, you know, you were there and you were, you were all there and you know that you helped us out because we're doing so much better. We have no debt. Um, the business is doing really great. You know, it's now become a family business. So my so my daughters have work to do as well. And that was just super, super great to see. Super great to hear. It was really, really nice to be a part of. This is Nifa. Nifa's story is a little bit different. So everyone else I've spoken about before had been displaced from their home by the Islamic State. But Nifa's husband was killed in 2003 during the US invasion by an American soldier. So a lot of the times, those of us in the humanitarian world, it's easy for us to think that we're helping people who are suffering because of the bad guys. Um, because the bad guys are never us. But Preemptive Love is an American organization. And that's really confronting because that's to come face to face with our complicity in the wars that happen. And I think this is something for all of us to consider, no matter where we come from, because it's where, you know, th this is sometimes the effect of the, the products that we consume, where they come from, and what the cost of their production is in local communities. Stories like Nifa's were really what brought my organization to Iraq in the first place. Um, it's what drives us it's what drives our commitment to peace, our continuing commitment to peace. Because it starts with small steps, like starting businesses for widows like Nifa, um, so she can send her children to school, so that they can equip themselves with the tools to rebuild their lives, their homes, their communities, and their nation. So Nifa wanted to start um, a mamak shop, so a convenience store. Um, selling a little bit of everything. So from sweets to potato chips to daily groceries like milk and vegetables and whatnot. Um, this is her on the day the shop was open. Big grin, had it on her face all day when we went to see her and had her, her shop all stocked and she was so excited, so excited. It was also Ramadan at the time, uh, the, the month of fasting uh, for Muslims around the world. So Nifa's brother-in-law, who she lived with, and some of his friends had come to help her set up shop. So they built the tent that her shop is in. Um, and on the day that she opened, they also came to help stock the shelves, etc. And so her brother-in-law, once, once the shelves were stocked, stopped and asked her, so what about iftar? So iftar is the meal that breaks the fast after sunset during Ramadan. So Nifa, with a huge smile on her face, turned around and told her brother-in-law, what of iftar? I'll think about feeding you when it's iftar. For now, I have a new shop to work on today. This is my future. <laughs> and that was it. She put her foot down. He laughed. And that, you can't, you can't look at that face and tell me that, that it's not nice to be a part of that. Because I think for so many of us that work in this, that do this work, that smile is is a reward, is so much of a reward. 
Speaking of smiles, I laugh every time I see this photo because I remember this visit and it was just one of the best visits ever. So this is Kawakep um, and this photo was taken in her shop um, which sells which sells fabric. So she, she, she wanted, she was one of our business owners that we started a fabric store for her because that was what she wanted to do. So when we first met Kawakep, she was nothing like the woman in the photo. She was reserved, she was hesitant, she didn't say very much, and she was spoken for by her mother-in-law. Um, so Kawakep was already a widow. Um, living with her late husband's family by the time ISIS came and destroyed their homes and, dis and displaced them to this camp. So in most of Iraq, when a woman marries a man, she becomes his family's responsibility. Um, but for Kawakep though, living with her in-laws in their old home and also here in camp, um, meant that her life was heavily curbed by the family's rules. With little thought given to her own wishes. Um, so when we met her to, dis to discuss her future fabric business, she didn't, she didn't really have a chance to speak. Um, she was really overshadowed by her, the, her dominant mother-in-law. But once we started the business though, we saw another, we saw another side of Kawakep emerge. The businesswoman who shone a pleasure, like when she made decisions about what she wanted in her shop. She was just waiting for the opportunity to be the boss. Um, by the time the business was up and running, we were greeted by an entirely different cowcat. The one who, who, like in the photo, could not stop smiling every time we dropped into to visit to say hello, see how she's going, big smile on her face, stay there the entire visit. Um, so despite... <sighs> It's small size, so the shop, her shop is a tent that's maybe about two by two meters, maybe a slight bit bigger at the most. Um, she has been swamped with business from the start. So in a few short weeks after her business started, she was already expanding from selling just fabrics into selling women and children's clothing. Um, and she could barely keep up with the demand. At, at the time of this visit, she was telling us that she was making uh, daily trips um, into into the into town to restock her wares, and I think for us to watch her move around her shop and you know be such a boss about the whole thing was just you know just wow. She went from being so quiet and so reserved and and just so still to just being completely animated. So here in this shot. That those are my colleagues, uh, Inas on the left and Ashley on the right. And all three of us are just dying with laughter because there's Kawakep holding court in the middle of the shop, telling us any number of, of funny mother-in-law stories. Um, once she started her shop, she put her foot down and told the mother-in-law, no, this is my shop. And I get to say in what's happening here. And only I get to say in what's happening here. Um, one of the great things about hearing Kawakep's story also was she was telling us, she was, so she has a son and he goes to school. And when we came to visit um, around this time, she told us, you know, now when my son goes to school, I can give him one or 2,000 dinars um, to go every day so he can, you know, buy something from the shop to eat if he wants. 
and stuff like that. She's never been able to do this before because she had no money, she had no job. And her in-laws just would say no. So by having this shop, she got her independence back. She got agency over her life back. And she got her confidence back. I think as, as a woman, for me to see this happening to other women is, it strikes, it strikes a very special chord. So I think this is what most of us women want in life and work very, very hard to achieve in life. So I've, I've talked now about a lot about, you know, coming to visit our business owners um, from time to time in the shop. So when we start, when Primitive Love starts businesses for shop owners, um, it's not like we just go out, buy things with them, chuck it in the shop and go, okay, see you later, have a great time. Um, it is a relationship that we form with them. And often it's a relationship that goes on for many, many years. Um, there's always constant, we, we coach them through businesses. We're always there to um, help them through, you know, if they, if they run into issues, we're always there to help them try and find solutions to their problems. We're there to commiserate when something goes wrong. And we're also there to celebrate when things go right, because that's, that's absolutely part of what you do with your with your relationships or with the people that you're in relationship with. Okay, so I could tell stories all day, but I'm gonna end my storytelling with this little girl. This is Eileen. She's at the time I took this photo in, uh, in the middle of the year last year. She was six years old. Eileen is from Syria. Uh, she, she moved, her mom and dad ran away, uh, sorry, had to flee their home, sorry, not ran away. They did run away from ISIS. They come from the north of Syria and they are, they are Kurdish people and their homes were destroyed by ISIS in 2014. So life in camp is all Elaine has ever known. This is Elaine's mom, Silva. Silva is one of our makers. So she makes the candles that we sell in our shop. And Elaine is very, very cute. She was one of the very first Syrians that I ever met. And when I met her, it was because we went to do a shoot um, at her mom's place for, for um, candle making. So, she was like this cute, tiny little girl. And she was staring at me the moment I walked into the house. So I thought, oh, you know, it's cute. Like, she likes me. I was disabused of that notion very, 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 very quickly. Oh, there's Eileen having tea with us. Um, so she was very, very shy. So she was always peeping out at us from behind a wall or in the room or behind her mom. And then once we finished the shoot, we all sat down to drink tea. And so she kept, you know, she kept looking over and she was really, really curious. And so eventually, as we sat there, we were talking with her mom and, uh, and some of my colleagues. She finally crawled really close enough so that she was touching me. Eventually, she came and sat in my lap. And I was, I was just, my heart just melted. I don't spend a lot of time with small children, so I'm not, I'm not, used, to, I'm not used to this amount of cuteness quite near me. Um, so I thought, oh, you know, it's really cute. She likes me. It turned out it wasn't me she was after. 
she had been staring at the two cameras that were hanging from my shoulders the entire time I was working. I would pick up one, they are cameras with different lenses on them for different focal lengths uh, for the photographers among us. I use, I use two so I don't have to change lenses in the middle of the shoot. It's just more efficient that way. And she had been watching me like a hawk the entire time. I would pick up one camera, take a shot, put it down, pick up the other one, take another shot, put it down. By the time she came to sit next to me, she'd reached for my camera. And so here's, here, here's my rules. I don't put my camera in the hands of anybody who is generally younger than 18. Now, the reason of this being, if they break it, they can go and work and buy me a new one. So I don't know what happened. Um, she picked up my camera and said, okay, well, she can have it. Why not? So I thought, later on I went home and I thought, wow, that's really out of character for me. And then of course I did it again. So but she, she's, a, she's a pro, Eileen. Check out how she's, how she's holding that camera. Uh, for the photographers among us, you'll notice that her, her, her index finger is on, is on the shutter button. She figured out that if you depress the shutter button also lightly, the autofocus is triggered and you can focus on, on what it is you want to take a picture of. So I said before that I don't spend a lot of time with young children. I don't. I'm not used to how precocious they can be. So within an hour, the shoot itself, while we were there probably took maybe 45 minutes a lot and she'd been watching me that whole 45 minutes and in that 45 minutes she had watched me closely enough to figure out how to work the camera so by the time she picked it up she figured out how to make it how to trigger the focus how to take a photo how to review the photo and the lcd at the back of the camera and then how to deactivate the lcd so the camera's in shooting mode again and you know what? I went back that day and looked through my files and saw that she'd taken photos like this. One hour with a camera was all she needed. I mean, I myself today, after 10 years of shooting, would have been proud to call a photo like this my own, but it's not. It came from a little six-year-old who was playing with the camera and of course pointed it at the things that were closest to her heart. Um, and then she took more. I was amazed. And I think what this, what this makes me think of is if one hour with a camera, you know, if she, if Eileen can produce this after one hour with a camera when she's never touched one before, imagine what a year, what she could do in a year. She's six, what she could do in a year, what she could do in 10 years, what she would be doing in, by the time she's 25, if given the access and the opportunity. So I'm gonna end my stories here with that, with that cute little girl. Um, also wanted to share some photos of my team. So I never go out in the field on my own. I usually go out with a team. Um, these, these two ladies are Ashley, who's from the States, and Inas, um, who's, who's from Iraq, uh, from Baghdad, as I mentioned earlier. Um, so the three of us worked extensively together with starting refugee businesses, etc., all the, through the course of last year. 
Um, it's always a lot of fun working with them. I have a ton of pictures. We've shared a ton of laughs. Um, and also, you know, when you're in a relationship with people over a long span of time, you start, your business owners start becoming a little more than business owners. They become people you know, they become your neighbors, they're part of your community. Oh, my slides are frozen. Okay, there we go. So here's Inas with Ahmed and his wife. They, at the time of this photo, I think it was somewhere in the middle of last year, had just had a new baby. And they named their new little girl, Inas, after the lady that always came around to help them to say hello um, and to always just make sure they were doing okay. It, it was a very, very emotional day for Inas, the grown Inas that day. Um, I think she was, she was really overwhelmed by the honor of having their child named after her. And it was just, just a really, just a really great moment, you know, in amongst the hardships and the difficult situations um, that exist in camp. These are preemptive list founders, uh, Jessica and Jeremy Courtney, uh, during Jessica's birthday last year. That is another birthday celebration in the office. Um, Sarah, who turned the ripe age of, I think, 23 or 24, and here is Afnan, one of our interns uh, from the US, who is now also uh, a colleague teaching, teaching English at the, uh, at the Syrian refugee camp. And right there is uh, Preemptive Love's uh, Iraqi, resident Iraqi filmmaker, Isan. Isan and I are the people in the Iraqi office who would start our day on many days with a full discussion for an hour about the latest and greatest in camera gear. We're both huge nerds and we can talk about cameras all day, every day, if we're given half an opportunity. I believe Isan is actually in the audience um, right now. So hello, <laughs> great. It's great that you're here, buddy. And so I've come to the end of my talk. I've thought, long and hard about what I wanted to leave you with. So it feels like the world's more becoming polarized, uh, is becoming more polarized every day. Everyone, no matter who they are, where they're from, where they are, feels like they're being attacked. But I think with all of the conflict that's happening everywhere, the protests, the wars, the only way it's going to get better is if we make it better, one person at a time. Statistics are overwhelming. Um, I checked the UNHCR website just before coming onto this call, and we are somewhere around the vicinity of 80 million displaced people in the world today. Um, that's overwhelming. How does one person? affect the lives of 80 million for the better, right? But we've seen, especially now um, in times of crisis, that we have the capacity to reach out and help the person next door who needs it, right? In, in COVID, 
COVID has changed a lot of our lives and it's also brought to the realization that we have the power to affect our neighbors. And I think this is what we need to hang on to because what we do as individuals has the power to change the lives of the people around us. Um, everyday kindness counts for a lot because no one knows what the next person is going through every day. Um, so as difficult as it is, especially in times of stress, if we're kind to one person, that's one splash in the great ocean of humanity that might cause ripples that we never get to see, but could make all the difference in someone's life and they could pass that on. So thank you um, for staying with me for this time. If you want to learn more about my organization, go to preemptivelove.org. If you want to get, uh, if you want to find out more about me, um, that's my website there, or you can simply Google my name. I'm very, very easily found on the internet. So thank you all very much. And um, I'm open for questions if anybody has any. Charlene, thank you. Uh, I really enjoyed it. And I think everyone else uh, did as well. Uh, let me just say you're not only an amazing uh, photographer, but you're a really good storyteller too. Um, okay, so we have time. Uh, we can take some questions now. Um, so to the audience, um, if you'd like to ask Charlene a question, uh, just use the raise hand button on your Zoom toolbar. Um, Christopher Pook, um, you can go ahead to unmute yourself. Can go ahead and go ahead. my only question is when are you going to come back because iraq misses you hey chris glad you made it thanks for coming <laughs> um i'm not actually allowed back in the country right now because singaporeans are still banned from entering iraq but you know what i am going to come back the moment that i can because i miss it i miss it in a really really big way as you probably were able to tell so Hopefully, I'll, it won't be too long before I get to see you. Awesome. <laughs> um, okay, Sh Charlene, um, maybe I'll just ask, ask you a question that, I was, that came to mind earlier. Um, what, what was the youth um, demographic like? Uh, when you were when you were working in the camp, uh, maybe can you share a bit on that? Uh, if the organization worked with any young women, uh, and you know, what were their sentiments, their aspirations? So I'm not actually aware of what the demographics in the camps were that we worked in because we didn't work with ten thousand people. We worked with a few business owners, but those were the relationships we nurtured. Now that being said. Iraq itself is a very, very young country. Um, so I believe something like close to 60% of Iraq is under the age of 25. And so that's a really, really young country. Um, I don't know if people here have been following the news, but when you think about the fact that 60% of the country is 25 or under, um, the massive unemployment rate for youth 
really has a, a nationwide impact because I think depending on the statistics that you listen to, youth unemployment is anywhere between 16 to 25%. COVID's had a huge impact on Iraq's economy. Um, I, I'm not an economist and I don't read numbers, but as much as it's COVID's had an impact in more resilient economies in the world, economies like Iraq's, which are already shaken by so many decades of war and sanctions and already having such a hard time with all the political turmoil, etc. Um, it's likely to bring Iraq, to, it, is, is, it could bring Iraq to its knees if not addressed. So as far as sentiments go, so most of the women that I shared about, like Buthina and um, Silva, Eileen's mom. So, so Eileen's mom is 24 or 25 this year. Buthina, I don't know, I would say, I can't honestly remember. She's probably around 30. Um, so, so many of the young, of, of the women we work with are somewhere in the late twenties or maybe mid, up to mid thirties. Um, Amuna is a little older because she has grown children. But yeah, so they're all, we, we do work with, with a lot of young women and the young women are, are the ones who are like, I, I have a future, help me to get there. So this is, this is what we have committed to do because usually you, we've seen as well in, in so many years of, of being, of being in Iraq is when you help a woman, that woman helps her community. So if you help widows, they help everyone around them. So, you know, women are resilient, but they're also tough as hell. Showed us a lot of uh, pictures. Do you have a particular favorite uh, that you have from your time in Iraq? Maybe share with us the story behind it. I can do that. Okay, let me just oh share my screen again. There we go. Okay. So I really like. Oh, wait, hang on. Let me just close my screen. I'm sorry. I don't appear to know how to work technology today. There we go. Let me full screen that. So I really like this picture. And. So I, I didn't take this picture on a job. So I am uh, an ambassador for camera brand Fujifilm. And last year, um, they released a, a new camera. And did you manage um, to I, screen share? Oh, did it's I manage to screen share? Hang on, is that not screen sharing? Yeah. Let me just try that again. Okay, is that, that shared now? Yeah. Okay. So okay, let, me, let me start again. I really like this one. So I, I didn't take this one on the job. Last last year, um, as I mentioned, I, I'm a Fujifilm ambassador. And last year, I was part of the big release project for a brand new camera that they were that they were debuting. And so as part of this project, I had to take, sub, uh, share some sample images with uh, Fuji and the world uh, of uh, photos taken with the new camera. And we also had to get a video made. So Isan was the filmmaker that, that made my video. And as part of making that video, the two of us were just really just exploring, exploring uh, Sulaimaniyah, the, the city that we're based in. Um, because I, I think when I, when I got to Kurdistan, 
I got there in January. It was it was winter. And it was green because it had been raining and raining. I think the, the year that I got there might have been one of the rainiest they'd had on record for like 30 years or something. And it was all through the region, Syria and Iran and stuff. There were massive floods happening everywhere. But what also happens when it rains is that, you know, it, it gets really green. And so I was really taken aback by just how gorgeous it is. So the Kurdish, most of the Kurdish regions, um, so the, the land that the Kurdish people people um, have lived in for centuries, past millennia, is, is spread over what is now Turkey, Syria, Iran and Iraq mostly. And most of it is mountainous. So Kurdish people have a saying that they have no friends but the mountains. They've been oppressed for a very, very long time. And it's always the mountains that gave them shelter. And so Kurdistan in Iraq is also gorgeous and mountainous. And there are two mountain ranges that flank the city of Sulaymaniyah. So in this shot, you will see this the whole city laid out in front of us. And, you know, when I first got there, I was just so, so, so breathtaking by how beautiful it was. And this photo, I think for me, is just an appreciation of how dramatic and how beautiful the land is. I, I will say that the photo does absolutely no justice to the actual scene. Um, to be at the top of this mountain, looking down the city at sunset, like these guys are, is to be, is to really understand how you are a part of something greater, that you are absolutely a part of the land on which you live. Um, so yeah, this is this is one of my favorites, I think, from the time and I and I come back to it often and I always, when I when I look at some of these photos I've taken, I, I always think, yeah, I have to go back there because there's just so much about it. I mean, I'm I'm a I'm a city girl. I've lived in big cities all my life. But in in certain cases, certainly as it was in Suli, I I get on top of a mountain and I go, I need this. This is this is this is absolutely one what what I want to understand more of in my life. So yeah. I I think it's really great that you managed to combine like your passion and skill and, and you know and put it into something meaningful at the same time. Um, I mean, as a as a photographer, you you hope you can influence people to kind of take action and I mean to show you know the conditions in Iraq, as you said. Yeah. How 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 could you could you say something? Well, I'm I, I'm not a photojournalist, so I'm not I'm not I don't shoot for the media and I don't I don't chase those stories either. I think. Oh, that's a really good question. I've thought about it quite a lot over the years. What it is what it is I hope to do with photography. And honestly, I think for me, it's just, a, it's just, I hope with photography to encourage people to look a little differently, to look beyond what they're being fed in the news, to go and see for themselves. Um, you can actually travel to Kurdistan tourism. Tourism is a big part of Kurdistan. It's very, very beautiful, especially in the spring. I very much encourage people to visit during the springtime. It's, it's gorgeous. Just go for a walk in the mountains. The landscape is amazing. And the light for for those for for those of you out there who are photographers, the light at those latitudes is 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 second to none. So, yeah. 
Thanks. Um, I have a question from uh, Miss Emily Lowe. Uh, she's asking about um, how, how about the lives of the internally displaced men? Uh, not sure if you had the opportunity to work with, uh, you know, IDPs, male IDPs. Yeah. So we we started businesses for for men and women. Um, I want to say it's the same, right? Because they're all part of the same communities and they've all been displaced, um, et cetera. A lot of the men, when they have the opportunity to work, a lot of them actually work um, as like, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Probably like laborers, if, if that makes sense. You go to building sites and, and do, you know, uh, labor like that. Um, we've started businesses for many men from poultry shops to a photography and, and a coffee shop. Um, again, there's always a need for grocery shops or like mama stores who sell a little bit of everything for the immediate community around, around them. Um, and yeah, that's much the same. It, the, men, the men, I think, are, are, are by default expected to provide for the family. So a lot of, a lot of men have... Um, there was a story I, I didn't end up sharing about about one of our um, one of our business owners who ran who ended up running an electrical store. He needed to provide for something like twelve people, so his kids, um, in laws, um, etc. So I mean they're the same. Everybody works really really hard because at the end of the day, I think most people like pretty much everybody here just wants to have a home, have a life, save a little bit for the future, you know, leave something for our kids. Um, just leave them with, with, with a better world, really. So did that answer the question? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, I have a qu question, uh, Asif, my, my colleague, uh, senior research fellow at the Institute, uh, Asif Shuja. Um, he's going to ask a question. Uh, Asif, go ahead. Uh, thank you, Tati. Uh, uh, Charlene, uh, I mean, it's a scary feeling you're talking before you because you observe, you observe life so deeply and not just that, you in fact uh, communicate the entire feeling uh, through your work, photography. Uh, looking at uh, your, your, your work, you know, in this regard, uh, I was reminded of a story, a very, very short story, uh, uh, which can draw a parallel. Uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, once at night, uh, there was a huge tide in, in the sea, and thousands and thousands of fish, they were, uh, you know, driven uh, to the sand. So just uh, before uh, sunrise, uh, a man was walking, just joking, and then he saw this scenery, and he thought that all these fish will die as soon as the sun uh, rises. So what he did, he started picking out fish one by one and uh, throwing them back to the water. Then there was other person uh, who was passing by. He was also aghast uh, to see, see this. And then he, he asked this man, uh, what are you doing? I mean, there are thousands and thousands of fish. What difference can you possibly make? This man simply smiled, threw one fish in the water. And he said, this will make difference in the life of this fish. And I think this is uh, this is what you have been doing. Uh, 
seeing the refugee, uh, their condition, I mean, it's really a bad, uh, bad, bad feeling. But I, I, I see that uh, you have given hope, you know, uh, even for people like us that uh, who see uh, these videos, uh, these uh, images and for our research purpose, you know, we do it all the time. We have very, I can personally thank you for, for giving us a way to, to feel good about it by doing something maybe. And I think in the same way, uh, the, the name is so catchy that you have given to your organization, whoever has given it, preemptive love. I, I think you can go to the proponent of preemptive war and ask him for donation of at least one dollar. <laughs> I think that will make difference in the life of that person. You know that who that person is, right? So I can just say thank you for, for the time that I have spent with you, uh, you know, with your work. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tepi. Thanks, uh, thanks, Asif. Yeah, I, I think it's 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 great um, because uh, through your work, uh, you you can show and through this uh, talk as well, we can show a different side of of Iraq and of the Middle East in general. Um, I I don't see uh, any questions from the audience at the moment. Um, you you mentioned that the salon became a, like a sort of a safe space for for women. Um, Tina Salon. Um, I'm just curious, like, what, what did they talk about most? I mean, what were they, uh, like, what were they, they preoccupied with, you know, quite curious. Well, honestly, I couldn't tell you. There were a lot of not, there were a lot of naughty things being said. So I, so I don't speak, I don't speak Arabic um, okay. and, and they, and, and Arabic is what they mainly speak. So my colleague Inas um, that you saw in, in several of the slides, she usually translates for us. Um, and so when she's in conversation, she's not often able to translate what was being said. But, and let me just share one of my screens. Um, hang on a sec. Okay. Okay, now, can you see that photo? Yeah. So I took this photo one afternoon. I was, me, Inas, and Ashley were in this salon for maybe half an hour or more or less, because I was doing not only, I wasn't only taking photos, I was shooting video that day as well. And so in the course of shooting videos, because I always had a camera pointed at them, but they, but they you know, they, they know us and we know them. So they were just comfortable. They were always like, oh, you know, this, this, this strange woman is coming to point a camera at us again. We're just going to continue to go over here. Um, but after a while, while we were, while we were filming, everybody in the frame here started laughing. There were, then there were other women who came in just because they were curious to see what was going on. They came in and then they started talking and then they all started laughing. And Inas also started laughing. And then, and so I, Ashley and I were looking at her and going, what, 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 what's going on? Inas said, well, they just asked if you are recording sound because they are talking about very, very naughty things that they don't necessarily want anybody to hear about. So, yeah, um, I like women talk about, you know, what whatever women talk about in the same way men talk about whatever it is men talk about. It's the same everywhere around. <laughs> you know, we have the same conversations in, in, in the privacy of our homes and our safe spaces. So, um, yeah, very, very often very often we are privy to a lot of this and it's just nice to share a lot you know nice nice to share a joke or two um with people and and that's 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 one of the parts of that's one of the parts of of, of building hope 
Because hope, hope's not, it's not like, you know, you sit around and hope for stuff. Hope, hope is action. When you're building something for yourself, that, that's what gives you hope. Something to look forward to tomorrow and next week and the month after and the years after. So um, I just also wanted to say something to, to Asif who spoke earlier. So Asif, you mentioned that you were a little scared to talk to me. I will say that coming in to speak in front of scholars from the Middle Eastern Institute is incredibly intimidating. Um, I mean, look, I'm a photographer. You guys actually study this stuff. So <laughs> um, the feeling is very much mutual. I, I like what you said about, you know, building, uh, it's not only about a one-off thing. Uh, you guys actually go there and, you know, build the relationship and you sustain it long after you, uh, the initial sort of uh, uh, first, first, first contact. There's a lot of uh, following up down the line. Um, you know, when, when these IDPs, uh, when, when these IDPs leave, leave the camps, uh, I mean, is there, is, do you guys also do, uh, the follow-up, uh, following from there? I mean, how, how do they rebuild, not, not just their lives, but you know, their homes and, you know, communities? I mean, we, we try to, um, we've had, we've had several business owners that have closed their businesses in camp because they're going back to where they came from to rebuild. Now, for a lot of a lot of the men and women that come from towns where ISIS um, that that ISIS destroyed, should I say? I mean, they may or may not have homes to go back to. If they have homes, maybe the inside of the home is completely gutted. Maybe the furniture is taken. So they do a, a lot of the time. They do build rebuild from scratch. Um, we over the years that my organization has been in Iraq, we've absolutely followed up with um with people we've helped um because you know after a while when, when you spend that that many years talking with people you know sharing you you share bits of your life with them they share bits of your life with you you, you quite you know a lot about each other you become friends so when we follow up with people it's also because it's they are friends and we want to know that you know they're they're doing well or if they have difficulties or if we can help in any way um sometimes they turn around they help us so yeah there's no each each relationship is different so how you you know how, how you visit with them how you are in relationship with them all that's all that's different from person to person did you have to uh, deal uh, deal with the authorities uh, i mean in in your work with the refugee camps our yeah because we're a registered organization of course, you know, you have to deal with registration and authorities. I, I don't because I was, I was field staff. Um, but certainly our, our, our founders who are also live in Iraq, um, they deal with, uh, government officials, the UN, um, other partner organizations, etc. because when an emergency happens, when there's a change of rules in the government, stuff like that, you need to deal with officials. Um, Esan, who's here is also, has also, as, as part of his role, also, also helps out in that capacity. So, yeah. Oh, you've been back since, uh, March, March, uh, March this year. Um, I mean, looking at Iraq right now, uh, I, this is more a personal question for you, but, but are you hopeful 
for what you see. Uh, hopeful for the for the country's future based on what you've seen so so far during your time there. Wow, I don't know. Like I'm not a scholar, so that Iraq is going through a lot right now. Um, the tensions between the U.S. and Iran don't help anything. Um, I don't know though, because I'm not a political analyst. I think I have hope for the people that I know in Iraq. I have hope for Buthina, I have hope for Amuna because they, you know, they're, they're troopers, they're champions. You know, they try every day. Um, what that means for the country, I, I really couldn't tell you. I'm really not in a position to say so. But, but I think we should never give up hope for a country because a country is its people. And Iraqis are, are nothing if not incredibly resilient and creative people. So there are tons of businesses and, and things in Iraq right now that are starting that are that might change the world one day. So I would say never give up hope. Never never consider a place, a person, an entire people as lost. Because humanity thrives. It's what we do. Thanks, Shadi. Um, I think it's Isan has a question. Uh, he's got his hand raised. Isan, go ahead. Thank you. Uh, hi, Charlene. Uh, I don't think it's a question. I just wanted to say uh, thank you for everything you've done and you still do for Iraq and to help Iraqis and to bring this hopeful image of the country and its people. Um, and also to acknowledge how amazing you are as a person and as a colleague. And um, and we and Iraq really miss you here. And I believe all the families who just share their stories are missing you too. Um, I think that shows how big the impact and the relationship you built and you made with these women and their families. Um, yeah, I'm so grateful for you, my friend. And uh, I hope to see you again here in Iraq soon. Thank you, Hassan. You know, I think you and I have nerded about so much camera stuff over the last almost two years now that I sometimes often forget like okay I often joke about the fact so, so to everybody else Isan is my colleague the person whom you've seen in some of my slides um we are really nerdy and I have we we are we we nerd out about stuff all the time we still do um but you know if I've ever called somebody a brother from another mother it will be Isan he's He's been a friend to me. He's been an amazing colleague. He is also the person who constantly shows me how to level up in my craft. Um, and he and, and so many others in Iraq have been my inspiration every day. Because, you know, when, when, when I'm going through a hard time, like COVID has had a little bit of an impact on me. 
And, you know, when I first got back, I was quite quite depressed for, for, for a little while. And I was just wallowing in it, going, oh, my God, you know, life is, you know, so hard, this, this, that, and the other, in Singapore. We really, compared to a lot of the world, have not suffered too much. Um, certainly times are hard for people here, and a, and, a, and a lot of vulnerable people are having a hard time. But in general, as a country, I think we've, we've not done too badly. And I always... During this time, I always think about the work my colleagues do. Um, I think about how Isan always gets up and gets going every single day and goes, okay, what do we have to do today? It is literally our job to try and make the world better every single day. So let's get up and let's do this thing. So Isan, man, you are still uh, an inspiration. Thank you very much for being my friend. I've got a question from uh, my colleague uh, Sharon. Uh, she's asking, "What's your advice for people who are interested in this kind of field work?" Um, I don't actually have any advice. So I get asked a lot by photographers. So being a staff photographer in today's world is kind of like hen's teeth. It's extremely rare. And I get asked by photographers all the time, oh, you know, how did you get into this? It's not a very exciting answer I have for anyone. I've been following preemptive love for a little while. And honestly, I got this job because they posted the job. I sat for a round of interviews. I went for a field test and they decided to hire me. That is literally how I got the job. I applied like any other job. So um, how I would say to get into this? Volunteer volunteer right at home it doesn't you don't have to go to iraq or iran or the middle east or in any other embattled place to do it there's there's plenty of need right here at home um there's a lot of there's a lot of grassroots communities um doing doing the work of helping vulnerable people right here so there's there's tons of opportunity to figure out how to make the world better right at our doorstep so like you know explore that Thanks, Shelly. Um, so you've been back since March. Um, what's what's next on the plate for you? Um, so I don't know. So right now, I mean, obviously, I'm not in Iraq. So my jobs right now, my my job right now has changed to being one officially. I'm a staff writer at Preemptive Love. Um, I don't know what's next for me. I don't think any of us do. I'm waiting for COVID to be over and or at least somewhat dealt with so it's safe to travel again so I can so I can go back to Iraq or travel elsewhere or something but I, I don't know like I think like like a lot of us I'm just waiting to see what happens next and whenever it happens so yeah I think all of us are also kind of hanging um, but well I, I think there are no more questions um, but I I think we can, uh, I, I hope everyone will join me in thanking Charlene once again for sharing her experiences so candidly. Uh, your, ex your stories have been extremely fascinating. Uh, your photographs amazing. Your experience is uh, certainly a very inspiring one and I want to wish you all the best for whatever comes your way next. Thank you so much for having me. It's really, it's an honour for me to be presenting at, at NUS MEI. So. Thank you, thank you so much.
the pleasure is ours. Uh, our appreciation to our audience as well for their participation. Uh, thank you for continuing to support the work of MEI uh, even through COVID-19. Um, just a quick plug, uh, if you're a film buff, uh, we'll be running our Middle East Film Festival in February next year. Uh, that's going to be happening virtually, so do stay tuned for more details on that one. Um, in the interim, though, we invite you to check out uh, two very good films that both MEI and Singapore Film Society have partnered with the projector on. Um, the Perfect Candidate, uh, which is about an ambitious young female doctor who goes up against the patriarchal system in Saudi Arabia. Uh, and The Insult, which is uh, about how a trivial personal conflict explodes into something much larger. Uh, these films are available for you to rent and watch on the projector's online platform, but there's also a discount if you use the promo code that is available on our MEI's website. So do check those out, and we hope that helps to kind of whet your appetite for the upcoming Middle East Film Festival. Um, okay, so that, that's all from, uh, from us. Uh, thanks again, Charlene. Um, have a good weekend, uh, and bye-bye, everyone.